Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Vita Podcast, where we help educate military veterans and their spouses on opportunities in Web3. Our plan is to host a series of industry leaders, many of whom are veterans or spouses themselves, so that we can learn about their journey down the crypto rabbit hole while understanding opportunities for transitioning veterans in the industry. I'm Chris Perkins, president of CoinFund. I'm a combat Marine veteran who spent 15 years on Wall Street before transitioning into the crypto space. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sponsor, Luca, who's dedicated their time and resources to make this podcast possible. For our 23rd episode, we will be speaking with U.S. Army Captain Lee Bracher, founder and president of the Texas Blockchain Council. Welcome, Lee. Thanks for having me on, Chris. Awesome, man. Well, uh, would love to hear about your background as we kick things off. Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, out of college, I went to uh, Officer Candidacy School at Fort Benning in Georgia, spent some time on the East Coast at Fort Lee and, and Fort Benning, and came back to uh, to the Texas area, Dallas area, worked at a few, worked as a police officer actually for a few years, and then made my way to academia. Um, I was a political science professor, and, and while I was in that post, I was doing some academic research at the Army War College on property rights and discovered the Bitcoin white paper and uh, digital property rights and also how you know blockchains can be applied to securing physical property rights as well and, and thereby uh, increasing human flourishing in, in, developing, in the developing world, similar to what Hernando de Soto describes in his book, Mystery of Capital. I don't know if you've ever read his stuff, but I'm a big fan of DeSoto. So that's how I made it in the blockchain world and and uh, founded the Texas Blockchain Council in 2019. It's a it's a nonprofit trade association. We do lobbying, advocacy, and business development for our 100-plus member companies. Wow. So let's step back to your military experience. Um, what was your MOS and background there? I skipped around a little bit. Uh, logistics at first, but I spent the majority of my years in uh, the reserves as a civil affairs officer and um, several years as an ROTC instructor. Got it. And did you deploy anywhere? You know, they kept me here in the U.S., so um, I did not, um, which is one of those things I look back on, like as a parent, as a dad now, I'm like, hey, I wish I had done it pre-kids. Now that I have three totally. kids, I'm, uh, I'm probably not interested anymore. <laughs> Totally, totally, totally. Is there anything that was uh, particularly formative during your military experience? Yeah, you know, I think that experience as a civil affairs officer, just working with folks who were looking at this asymmetric fight from a different perspective was quite formative. You know, they those folks had a lot of experience overseas working with uh, State Department, with host nation governments. Um, and, you know, th these conflicts are, are multidimensional. And Things in business are also multidimensional. So a lot of stakeholder management, you know, things that people don't think of when they think of the military, maybe, but it's it's just as important there as it is in business. Got it. And you're still in, right? You're with, is it, you're with the Army Features Command. That's right. Yeah, I'm I'm a reservist in um, work supporting our Army Features Command as a as an Army Innovation Officer with the 75th Innovation Command. Could you could you unpack that a little bit? What, what's that job all about? Yeah. Well, before I do, I should probably caveat that these are my views and certainly not the views of, of the Army. Um, but as an innovation officer, we're working to support an Army customer uh, to drive 21st century innovation uh, in our institution. So we support uh, Army Software Factory. There's other entities throughout um, 
you know, other teams that support other customers within the Army, um, Army Applications Lab, Army Research Lab, uh, and, and several others where we're really looking at how do we bring um, not only commercial off-the-shelf technology, but also a, a hybrid of the latest emerging tech with commercial off-the-shelf to bring it to the warfighter uh, in such a way that it makes them more effective both on and off the battlefield. Are you allowed to say, are you doing anything in the blockchain space in that capacity? Probably can't say, but, uh, you know, I, I will say that most things in the blockchain space are, are a little bit sort of nascent, I guess, from a DOD perspective. Uh, I, I wouldn't expect um, some of the enterprise applications of blockchain to be that formative for DOD because they're, they're such a, a large organization. They don't really work in consortia. You know, they're, they're so large, they ne don't necessarily need blockchains. Now, public blockchains like Bitcoin and others, uh, I think have a significant national security impl implications, both from mining, from Bitcoin mining, and also related to the dollar as a world reserve currency. Now that is certainly far above my pay grade as an officer in the military, but I can speak to that as a, as a civilian, as a, the president of the Texas Blockchain Council, for sure. So it sounds like you got into crypto via the academic route. Um, That's right. It's just interesting. Not, not too many people who come on to talk about that. They, they aped into something and then, you know, the light bulb went on. You talked a little bit about your theory, your, your thesis, but we'd love to hear a little bit more about it. Like, what's your overarching view of, of blockchain technology? Yeah, I alluded to this earlier, Chris. I, I, I was studying property rights. Hernando de Soto, Peruvian economist, was a big influence on my research. And I really went down the rabbit hole through the whole double entry accounting next iteration piece, right? Luca Pacioli develops double entry accounting, helps us with commerce, you know, uh, over time and space in the, the, the Renaissance era, you know, in, in the Europe. So that is really what sparked my interest is this is really the net, the 21st century's version of that uh, advancement. And not only are we going to uh, protect property rights in, in the form of money, but this is also this ledger and whether it's Bitcoin or other kinds of blockchains uh, and other types of crypto and digital assets, it's going to be how we transfer value uh, for the next several centuries. And uh, that was quite eye opening for me and wanted to dedicate my life to it. You're speaking to the choir like I have the same exact thesis this is one of the things that got me in was that I even take it a step back to Mesopotamia where ledger started. Right. And that part of the world just exploded in innovation, um, you know, millennia ago, many millennia ago, I guess. So I, could, I couldn't agree more with that thesis. And like, and I, and I oftentimes say that I don't think we think big enough because this is such a fun, it's, it's such a foundation of our, not only our economy, our civilization, right? Like who owns what? The ledger itself. So why did you start and found the Texas Blockchain Council? What, what inspired you to do that? Yeah. We were seeing so much uh, of a disconnect between the industry and traditional uh, institutions, academics, political, you know, elected officials, regulators, and uh, the industry back then in 2019, and really from its founding up until rather recently, was quite rough around the edges when it came to um, dealing with traditional elites. And so the TBC was founded as a uh, liaison between the industry and elected officials, both regulators, politicians, uh, traditional elites, 
who really couldn't see past uh, the the me the crypto bro meme and couldn't see what was really happening. Got it. And what's your typical day like? You know, I spend a little bit of time with elected officials and regulators. I spend some time with our member companies, and then I also spend time um, working on generating new opportunities for the council, whether that's uh, new members, new sponsors for our, our annual summit, uh, or new uh, influence, um, you know, political connections through through influence gathering. Understood. When you think about the hot button issues that you're prioritizing right now, what would they be? We're, we're pretty intent on responding to some of the federal uh, queries for guidance around the U.S. Senate Finance Committee. We just uh, one of our board members just published some some guidance. He's an, an accountant from Weaver, which is a strong firm here in, in the Texas area, uh, about how mining, staking should be taxed, um, wash trading. So some of these nuanced tax questions uh, we're very interested in. Of course, we're certainly interested in in um, what's happening with the SEC. That's a, a bigger fish that we don't uh, attempt to fry. Uh, but we can do things here on the state level uh, that pertain to, um, so we just passed, passed House Bill 1666, a proof of reserves bill. Um, and we are working with the Texas Department of Banking to ensure that gets implemented in a way that's conducive for the industry, but also gets at why the bill was passed in the first place, which is transparency. And uh, those proof of reserves attestations won't be a panacea to prevent future FTXs, but they will be a tool, the regulators tool belt to, uh, to, to start the conversation. So even in the stable coin bill that, that just made its way out of the, uh, out of the, the, the committees uh, within the house, there seems to be this uh, back and forth around federal oversight versus state oversight. Uh, do you have a view on how that's going to play out? I think in regards to stable coins, there's a really strong argument that there's some state um, a state role to be had there just because of the way banks are chartered in our country. You know, each bank receives its initial charter from the state uh, and then goes on to have a dual charter typically uh, and dual regulator. They're re regulated both by the OCC, uh, FDIC uh, and the Fed, as well as the Department of Banking in that in that state. Uh, for the most part, I mean, there's some some large banks where that's not really the case. They're they're almost exclusively regulated by by the federal government. But the stablecoin piece, there will be uh, a need for st the states to play a role, right? Um, stablecoins are considered money, whereas Bitcoin and other digital assets are either commodities or securities. Um, so, for the purpose of business law and and for the purpose of uh, Texas Department of Banking, stablecoins are considered money and they are regulated as such. And so um, while the market structure bill deals primarily with that trade-off between the CFTC and the SEC, stablecoin bill, I think there will be quite a bit of state oversight there. Really interesting. So can you explain, there's a number of different trade organizations in the crypto space. There's the Blockchain Association, there's Digital Chamber, um, a whole bunch of different um, folks, Coin Center, et cetera. How does Texas Blockchain Council fit into that uh, array of, uh, of trade associations? Yeah, we're the largest state level trade association, same designation, 501c6, which means we can lobby and get involved in politics, just like the, the BA and the Digital Chamber. Uh, Coin Center, I believe, is a 501c3, so they don't do lobbying, they do 
pure education and uh, research. So great, all needed, right? So we, we play a role as, as sort of a leader among state associations. There's 40 other state associations. We're a co-founder of the U.S. Blockchain Coalition which is a loose federation of those other 40 states associations. Yeah, so we work very closely with Kristen Smith at the VA and her team, uh, as well as Perry Ann Boring at the Digital Chamber and her team. So there's 40. So we're missing 10. Why do you think? It's hard for some of the smaller states that don't have a lot of commerce in this industry to really generate a budget to actually establish influence. I'd say out of the 40, only about six or seven have a full-time staff. Got it. Um, you know, we have a staff of five with some contractors and lobbyists, and that's more than than most of the other states, or really all of the other states. But there are seven or eight states that do have a staff, do have budgets, and, and can impact policy. Pennsylvania, Florida, Virginia, yep. Washington State are, are some of the strong ones. Wow, it's interesting. And there's so much going on in Texas right now. I mean, Austin is emerging as a global crypto hub. You've got the mining industry, so so it totally makes sense. So so I guess pivoting forward, what are you excited about in this space? What, you, what excites you about crypto, Web3? In the near term, I'm excited about Bitcoin ETF. Uh, I think that's really going to bring some, some interest. I mean, PayPal was big news last week. Um, I think most people did not see that coming. I didn't see it coming. And I've, I've even talked to some folks in the banking world and some of the regulators this week who said this changes the game. Uh, there's going to be a lot of banks looking at the Fed, the OCC, uh, and, and different federal regulators saying, why is PayPal able to take advantage of this and we are not? So big, big news. I totally agree. You saw Visa today come out with something around account abstraction. So I think the theme we're seeing is institutional adoption, which is very exciting. But outside of the banking sector, in a technology that unlocks a lot of financial applications, so it really causes a lot of major policy questions to be asked, right? Yeah, I think self custody is the other thing that I'd mention in that in that scenario, right? We we did some polling here in Texas that showed that forty eight percent of people under the age of twenty nine own a digital asset, but only six percent of people over the age of sixty five do. Uh, tons of other interesting nuances in that polling data that I could share another time. As we get some generational buy-in, uh, it's already there for the younger generations, the self-custody education efforts are going to have to uh, really be amplified, but it's a collective action problem. Nobody is incentivized to do that on their own. Everybody's going to try to free ride off of the, the education of others. So that's something we're going to have to collectively solve together, and, and I don't know how that's going to be solved. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's funny. I'm, I'm trying to open up a bank account for my, my kid. Um, he's a minor and uh, it's, it's taken me like a week to do, but no problem in spinning up a MetaMask wallet really quick and uh, getting access to what he needs to do there. Uh, so it's, it's really, I think self-custody is going to be hugely important. We see guys like Warren Davidson, who is a West Point graduate, uh, who's making a big stink on that. We're going to get him onto this podcast eventually. But um, yeah, I agree with you on that as well. Um, any any advice that you have for vets trying to break into crypto? You know, I had to almost create my own job because I was coming from academia. And, you know, if I had talked to Coinbase or Kraken or or a, big, a publicly traded Bitcoin miner, they probably wouldn't look twice at me. So what I would say is, you know, start, ne start networking and start adding value, building that network and adding some value to folks. Uh, it doesn't really matter what your, your resume was. 
Uh, I think the government affairs area is a great area for people that are veterans to get involved with uh, the crypto industry. There is still a huge need there. And right now, more than ever, I mean, budgets are, are tight, but people realize public policy and government affairs is not where you want to cut your budget right now. I, I was literally on with the founder today, a uh, big project. And, you know, we were talking about how imperative it is now to seize the narrative, because if the narrative moves away from you, it's so much more expensive to, to turn it back. So nip it in the bud, like get in front of the policy. And uh, and really, it's it's not about like lobbying is not about doing anything nefarious. It's about educating mostly, wouldn't you say? And, and explaining oh, yeah. to people like why things are important. And, and I think we both agree this is super important. That's exactly right. Yeah, lobbying does have a sort of a negative connotation. That's why I try to say government affairs, but tr truly that is lobbying. And I'm a registered lobbyist down in Austin. We employ a registered lobbyist, uh, but it is education. Nine times out of 10, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm going to, to a committee hearing or, or to a lunch and uh, they've got lots of questions and we're just working through things. Do, do you find one of the biggest challenges is, is as, you're, as you're doing that advocacy and that education, it seems as though we have, and I think you alluded to this earlier, less of a party issue. Like we're finding bipartisan support that the issue seems to be generational. Is, is that the same in Texas as well? 100%. We've got support from younger Democrats, younger Republicans, and really our biggest challenge is actually rural Republicans who are, I, I'll say over the age of 65. Yeah. Um, that's that's really where we we run up against the biggest opposition. Yeah, well, I think the good news here is that time is on our side, um, and nature will take its course. Um, are you are you doing any hiring, or are there? You talked about government affairs as being an area, an exciting area to hire. Um, I couldn't agree more. Are you hiring at, at the blockchain Texas Blockchain Council? You know, we just made two hires in the last sixty days, or I guess maybe ninety days. So. Uh, we aren't at the moment, but we have this big summit coming up in November. I wouldn't be surprised if we plus up uh, before before that. Awesome. And then um, how can people connect with you, Lee? So uh, we're at TexasBlockchainCouncil.org. I'm at Lee underscore Bratcher on Twitter. And really, if they want to connect, they can come join us at the summit, North American Blockchain Summit, uh, November 15th through 16th. Oh, that'd be awesome. And uh, any last thoughts? No, Chris, I just appreciate you having me on and what you're doing for the, the veteran community and what you've done for me as uh, in, the, in the time that we've known each other, just making those introductions very kind of you. No, at least I can do. I think, look, we're all in this together. There's nothing better than uh, working, partnering with fellow veterans. It's a, it's a wonderful point of departure. And, and one thing that I hope listeners understand is that if they're transitioning out of the military, they've got an incredible network. There are people that will move mountains for them. Um, and, and I know we're all in this together. So thanks again. And really, really appreciate you coming on the show today. Um, awesome, awesome comments. Uh, love the role that you're doing. Wanted to thank you for the advocacy that you're putting forth. As I understand that a lot of the, the policy that's coming out of places like Texas will actually set the stage for the rest of the nation. So like really appreciate everything. And uh, we're, we're again, humbled to have a veteran like you, Lee, leading the fight. Um, also wanted to thank our sponsor, Luca. Couldn't do this without you. Uh, and if there's anyone else uh, that you think, as you guys are listening, that we should bring on to the Vita podcast, please send me recommendations and we'll get them on. And uh, as, as always, you can reach out to me on Twitter at PerkinsCR97. Thanks again, Lee. Thanks, Chris.